This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday, time for our Zoomer Squad, and a rare summer sitting of the legislature is beginning today. Throne speech will be read tomorrow, and it's happening amid the staffing crisis in our hospitals, especially in emergency wards, many of which are closing. And on the lighter side, the National Post has a big takeout declaring that 80 is the new 60. And I can tell you personally that I no longer think of that age as terribly old. What do you think? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740. For 740. And now I am joined by Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, Bill Van Gorder, chief operating officer and chief policy officer of CARP, and David Kravit, VP of Zoomer Media and chief membership officer at CARP, right here across from me in the studio. Hi. Hi, Hi everyone. Hello. Hello. Hi, uh, Libby. Hi. Okay. Peter? Yep. Yep. Okay, so let's begin, I guess, with the serious stuff and uh, the throne speech. So, David, what are you looking for? I'd like to see some acknowledgement of health care as being a crisis and not just a box to be checked. Uh, I don't expect it to be the only topic. I'd like to see some sign that is the paramount topic Uh, Because the system is in collapse. It literally is in collapse. And it would be nice for them to acknowledge that and to bring in some uh, emergency measures or to declare in their language some state of emergency, maybe short of panic, but emergency. Um, I'm not optimistic it'll be treated that way, but it should be. Bill, you know, last week I was talking to Dr. Kevin Smith, the head of UHN, and he was saying... Yes, it's very problematic. It's challenging. But he stopped short of crisis. And I have heard that from some other um, people who are very involved in healthcare, hospital administrators, uh, who are saying, yes, uh, some of the shortages will be alleviated after the summer because people need holidays and they're taking them. So are we overblowing this, perhaps? Well, we certainly aren't from the point of view of our CARP members who are telling us that we are in crisis, as uh, David uh, has said. Uh, They're saying to us the premier ran on a platform of I'm the get it done premier. They want to see him take immediate action and promises of things that are going to uh, be done in the next three years or five years doesn't wash if you're 75 or 80 years old and waiting to to uh, get uh, treated either in wait times or lining up in emergency wards or finding emergency wards are are even uh, closed it is a crisis in the view of the patients who need to use it and that just seems to indicate that the politicians and the and the bureaucrats in charge don't really understand how the public is finding how the health system these days. Well, uh, Peter, you know, one of the things that people have said is that there's not a magic bullet. So I'm wondering, uh, what can they do that would take effect so quickly? They've ordered the colleges to come up with a plan for certifying foreign trained professionals sooner. Uh, I don't know how much that will relieve the system. Yeah, um, that that seems like it would be a little bit longer term than than immediate. Um, I, I guess what they can do is is start recruiting. Like the the uh, U.S. states have been recruiting nurses for years, offering you know um, you know uh, higher pay, uh, relocation costs, training costs, um, you know um, apartments, condos, that kind of thing. Like sweetening the pot to attract uh, people to work in your province. I, I think we're going to see that. For sure, because um, it's just a matter of supply. Like, the, if 
if nurses are retiring and and there's just not enough to um, to staff, you know, you know, the, the, the salaries will go up and there there will be sort of, um, you know, uh, hospitals will have to sweeten the pot somehow, you know, and and I think that's that's an immediate solution, Wilson. David, there's a lot of talk of Bill 124, which caps nurses' salaries at one percent. The premier has said that he'll uh, negotiate without that cap when it comes off. Uh, I sort of get that he doesn't want to give away a negotiating point before he negotiates, but uh, do you see that? I mean, it seems to be such an irritant, and in the situation, I mean, it seems there's no way that the hospitals will get away with a 1% increase. Well, there isn't, but I think that... um we have to realize a couple of things. First of all, the average RN salary in Ontario is over a hundred thousand dollars a year. Right now, it's forty to fifty dollars an hour uh, plus. So I think that um, if it takes more money to keep the supply of nurses where we need it to be, or to increase the supply, I think that's. I'm not saying, by the way, that that's too much. It just it, it, it's a significant amount. And to Peter's point, don't think that every U.S. state, particularly those adjacent to our our border are not recruiting nurses here because they get paid even more and they can get benefits. And if they throw in an apartment and relocation and lower tax rates, blah, 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 uh, they're going after it. Everybody's facing this uh, shortage. What I'd like to see, though, is instead of these one-off announcements, we're going to do this over here and another minister says this over here, federal health minister says we don't have enough doctors, we're going to do that. Why don't we see a unified attack that says we're going to do these seven things, the feds and the province. There's 3,000 seats in medical schools in Canada. That's it. We need way more. The acceptance rates at universities, five, under 5%. We could double it and not sacrifice quality. We need more nurses. We need more doctors. We need to speed up the training of foreign trained uh, nurses and doctors that are already here. So all of the above, and I wish that I, somebody would just come forward and say, here is my you know, well, we had um, blueprint for emergency. healthcare unions saying yeah. all of those things. Right. And uh, in a piecemeal way, governments have been saying to the, uh, the problem is, you see, they announce uh, they're training a thousand people there and they're they're doing something else here. And, and then you have to sort of sit there and. Yes, exactly. You said it piecemeal. Little, That's the magic word, piecemeal. A little calculator. Yeah, so. Exactly. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it can be difficult to piece it all together and the various levels of government. And it's interesting, you know, when when we're talking about licensing those professionals quicker, uh, this really blew me away. But uh, Bill, part of this, there are there are uh, apparently quite a few of them who are certified, but they haven't got their immigration status because the immigration <laughs> department is insanely backlogged. I mean, it was backlogged before the pandemic. And I mean, I don't know what they are doing there. Well, it, <laughs> and it, it just shows that they're not putting their priorities where they, they should be backlogged or not. We've seen them uh, put other groups uh, to the front of the line before. They could do it again. The, the uh, policy-wise, the, the government could just tell them to do it and they'd have to, uh, they'd have to do it. There's also a problem. It's fine to say that uh, uh, that uh, they're they're qualified. In fact, they are qualified uh, through foreign institutions who already have the approval of of our government in terms of offering the courses and and that are that are needed. What they what they need is the opportunity here to write the exams and and get their uh, get their approval. The exams are very expensive, but that's. A problem for many of them. So why doesn't the government say we will pay for the exams for anybody who uh, qualifies to have this done? Easily done. Uh, not a huge amount of money overall. I mean, it's a, you know, a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars is a lot for an immigrant. It's not a lot for the government to pay uh, per person. There are things they could be doing right now that would be uh, would be uh, specific in this in this regard. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, it's really, I mean, the, the, everything we're talking about is, is out there. Yeah. 
Yeah, and we it, need more geriatric specialists. We know that there are more older people than younger people now, but in Ontario, we only have 313 geriatricians, and there's over a 1,000 pediatricians. just doesn't make sense. Well, uh, it, it doesn't, you know what? But this is also a longstanding thing. I remember doing an interview years ago, I don't even remember how many years ago, with Dr. Samir Sinha, where he said, uh, any medical uh, student graduate who wants to do geriatrics, I will take them as my student and give them a place. And I don't think that there were that many takers. But it it requires a crisis mentality. And I just want to give two examples. Well, one example is the COVID vaccine. When you had a huge crisis that was acknowledged as such, with all the fumbling and all the errors and all the finger pointing, they nevertheless got vaccines done in a quarter of the time it would normally take if you had all the silos, all the approvals, all the bureaus, all the clinical trials. They were able to, the governments of the day, with all that they did wrong and, and you know, getting into the they were able to deliver a product in record time because they adopted a crisis mentality where the normal rules don't apply. That's the situation we're in here. Why doesn't the, to Bill's point, somebody from immigration, somebody from labor, somebody from health care, somebody from, they've got to get together and they've got to say there's six things we're going to do as a country right this minute to address this. And they won't. They'll just keep it in their little silos. Hmm. That's not a very encouraging take, no, David. I'm observing. I, I, I'm, I'm ready to abandon that take tomorrow, Libby, if I could only see this in the throne speech. You tell me, prove me wrong. Okay, let us uh, turn to things that are more pleasant. And uh, I was uh, very gratified to read this takeout in the National Post telling us why 80 is the new 60. And uh, they listed a whole bunch of very exceptional people, uh, like Gloria Steinem, who is 88, Paul McCartney, turned 80 in June, and uh, he likes to cap his workouts by balancing on his head, feet in the air for five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Gloria Steinem, Harrison Ford, has a, a fifth Indiana Jones movie coming out. He turned 80 in July. Uh, ditto Patrick Stewart, Captain uh, Picard uh, has another movie, and on it goes. I dream of Jeannie, Barbara Eden. Remember her in her little sexy oh, yeah. outfits? Yeah, she's turning <laughs> yeah. 91 in August. Uh, I don't Come know on. if she still can wear those outfits anymore. Probably not. <laughs> we'll, give, we'll cut her a little slack on that one. Little so yeah. 80 is, uh, do you agree? Is 80 well, the full, I certainly agree. I mean, full transparency. I'm going to be there in less than six months. So oh, really? That. Yes, I agree. But uh, no question, here I am still working uh, full-time at a very senior national uh, job, and I'm not feeling any different than I did when I was 50. That's good. Uh, I have to say, my doctor is well into his 80s, and mostly we talk on the phone or by email, but he knows me well, so it's fine. And he's uh, still sharp as a tack, and our own on another panel I couldn't believe it. David Crombie, the former tiny perfect mayor, I mean, he's 86. He yeah. he doesn't look 86. And out of all the panel, which are uh, two younger people, he's kind of seems to be the most uh, kind of flexibly open-minded and forward-looking and saying, you know, change happens and change is good. Prince Philip reduced his work schedule at 89 due to a back problem. And when that back problem was resolved, he kept going till he was 95. Uh, how many of us could keep up the Queen's schedule, even reduced as it is? I mean, it, these are, it's not the age that they've lived to, it's that they're keeping active, they're keeping productive, they're, they have uh, uh, all of their Well, faculty. if you're a royal, you have a lot of help. Yeah, you <laughs> do, you do, but you still have to you know, yeah. get there and go there and turn yeah. out and stand up and say it and all that. So I'm not saying that it's physically impossible, clearly not, because they're doing it. But um, there's no sense of retreat, withdrawal. It's I'm going to use this available time to be productive. I think that's the key. I, I just read a little item on uh, uh, 
the death of one of Toronto's oldest doctors. So he uh, practiced until the age of 102 and died a few weeks shy of his 105th birthday here in Ontario. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I wonder who his patients were. (laughs) (laughs) But clearly they trusted him and clearly he was effective. I mean, there are track meets for centenarians. Yeah, yeah. There are, you can argue about whether their their time, their recorded time is anything great, but there are track. There's a whole category of uh, track and field competition for centenarians. So we, uh, I know, I know, we do those. Yeah. Like, we do we those stories, them, and yeah. I wouldn't worry about the the time. No, right? exactly. Let them take thirty seconds to uh, go. My, my husband loves nothing better than to leave somebody thirty or forty years younger in the dust. He's like unbelievably fit. Yeah. But he'll be annoyed if I say how old he is. So well, he, he bikes, right? Isn't he? A bike? He bikes. He plays squash, which is oh, really? extremely hard on the body, and he plays tennis as well. Oh, squash is a serious. Squash uh, is like crazy. He said he's not doing it in the summer, uh, okay. but he'll he'll be back at it in the fall. Oh, but the pressure on your joints and your knees and uh, uh, squash, particularly. Yeah, squash is it's harder on your body than yeah. tennis is. Anyway, so what is, um, but of course, it's it's not everybody that is that blessed. But we're not far off, if that's the headline. I, I, serious, we're not that far off. Another story will be in the same studio, God willing, 100 is the new 80. <laughs> it's coming. It is coming. 100 is the new 80. That story is coming. They can start setting the type now. Setting the type. Okay, David. Good one. <laughs> I mean, we've been, I deliberately we've been, wanted uh, to date myself there. Yeah. Yeah. Been, uh, we we plan to write it. Yeah. Yeah. We, plan, we plan to write it. Will we, will we yeah, all Dave, still? Yes, David and I will write it. Yeah, we'll write it. I have it in draft form already. <laughs> yeah, oh, okay. That's good. That's good. Well, and, you know, it doesn't surprise me because it's kind of a, I don't know, actuarially, if you make it to a certain point, if you make it to 80, and you haven't had a massive heart attack or cancer, uh, you are likely to live a lot longer. Sure. That's kind of the way it goes. Yeah, because right. you didn't get, uh, you didn't, you know, pass earlier due to some of these conditions, so you have a good chance. Well, and some of the centenarians that I have encountered, like I'm thinking of the fabulous Kitty Cohen, who died at the age of 106 and was, was doing the Princess Margaret walks to concert can- to conquer cancer until recently and you know and there was another woman whose name i uh forget at 105 and it was a i met her at a birthday party and her daughter was there and her daughter was in her 70s and kind of looked 40 uh, so there is a certain amount of uh, genetic lottery in that as okay. well okay but it's the but it isn't even the duration of the lifespan it's what you're doing with it i think that they're really talking about here i yeah. mean iris apfel has just launched a new furniture collection at the age of 102 so, yeah, I wonder so, how how much did she do for that, except right, for putting her right. name on. Okay, but she interviewed very cogently about it. She oh, explained yeah. all the different parts of it, why she wanted this look, and what she was. I mean, it, you know, she fooled me. I'm not saying she literally no she labored didn't. over the drafting table, but um, um, she was she's still very sharp and was able to talk about what she's after and what the look was and and why she liked it. So. I'm going to take a call from Evie in Toronto. I think Evie, Evie, uh, hi, Evie. How are you? Hi, uh, fine. Thanks. I might get cut off, uh, but I just wanted to, is there an echo there by any chance? No. Okay, good. Uh, oh, she did get cut off. Too bad she didn't have her piece. She, the, the, the little note from Evie said she didn't think there were enough brains in government. Well, she's got a good point, you know. Uh, one of the problems <laughs> that, is the good given. people. <laughs> yeah, good good people are becoming less and less willing to run for run for office, be, you know, because of the way they uh, uh, are being treated. We've got to do something about uh, that uh, too, if we're going to encourage uh, good people to uh, uh, to run for government and and be be in charge. And uh, being a politician is not no, no matter what we may think of their their actions being in that role is not comfortable it can be it can be risky they're getting they're getting threats they get 
uh, unfair backlash uh, from from people, and it, it's something a lot of people just don't want to, to bother doing now, and that's that's a huge issue. Well, and more so if you're a woman. Yes, absolutely. And more so if in Canada you can't make as much money through corruption as you can in other countries. <laughs> well, and and not only that, if you're running. Uh, you can be on the hook for a lot of money for your campaign expenses. Yes, you can. Yeah. You can. Yeah. So, um, yeah, all in all, you're yeah. right, Bill. Uh, the yeah. system does not encourage that. And I guess uh, yeah. it's not it, it's not that appealing when you have people like us who are complaining about but it. Everything, isn't just but a, it isn't just the politicians. There's a culture. We built up a culture in the government, all parties, all levels of no consequences for non-performance. You know, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation had a report last week that said the feds, the average ministry, achieves less than 50% of its stated goals in the in the mandate letters that the primary, these measured goals less than 50%, and all the deputies got bonuses. Well, you know got what? Got raises and bonuses. I think that situation is worse because of the pandemic. So here's what I see, and uh, here's... What I understand why nurses are so angry, because in the pandemic, there are people who worked so hard, much harder, took risks, uh, really put it all out there. And uh, nurses are at the top of that category. And there are people who, I am sorry, collected full pay and sat on their duffs because if they did their jobs their jobs might have gotten done and what we are seeing is the result of that that in government cannot deliver basic services not basic services and we have people on the one hand uh, who i am sorry and if you want to send me a nasty email because i'm slagging some kinds of government workers go ahead but they Sat on their duffs collecting full pay. And on the other hand, you have other people who have just given everything and in a, in a, and for nurses, I'd go further. I know you agree in a, in a highly stressful situation, yeah. even without the pandemic. I mean, yeah. every shift is challenging. It's time consuming. It's hard. It's physically hard. It's emotionally hard. It's draining and shift after shift after shift with no break. And, uh, and they're the backbone of the system, and they're not getting much uh, love. Well, from the yeah, government. and it's it's also, I mean, you know, they do make decent money. Sure, they do. Of course, they do as they should. But it's like they saw in the pandemic that doctors were given like what five hundred dollars an hour, five hundred dollars a shift to take extra shifts, and and they're getting and and Ford is crowing about this five thousand dollar bonus they got, but it's coming in several tranches. It's taxable though i mean come on people everything you're going to get is taxable (laughs) that's right so i i don't know it's just it just seems like there you know we have divisions between people who did well financially pandemic people who didn't and we have divisions people who worked really hard during the pandemic and people who didn't yeah for sure okay we have Festus in Scarborough. He likes what I'm saying. Hi, Festus. Go ahead. I, I, yes. To be honest, uh, while I, I wanted to say to you, in a lot of journalists I'm listening, say what you're saying. It's good. It's, 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 it's meaningful and it's clean. Who want to vex with you? Who want to please with you? Okay. I think we lost you, Festus. Okay. We're telling it like it is. I'm looking at the clock. We are almost out of time, so uh, we'll go around and and uh, give you an opportunity to wrap up. So, Peter, starting with you, what are you leaving us with? Well, just the the we've talked about healthcare and, and the nursing crisis, but there's also inflation and uh, economic like a uh, recession coming. So, those are two other things that will be on Ford's agenda coming up. Okay, Bill. Much like I, uh, much as I would like to talk about the great contributions for uh, people over the age of uh, 80, 80 years, I really want to say that we're looking in the throne speech and the following for a change in the upper echelons of the bureaucrats uh, uh, to a real change to make sure that we've got action-oriented uh, people. Politicians come and go. 
It's really the bureaucrats that need to step up to the plate and fix the problems that are in front of us. Yeah, but the, the, they don't figure in the throne speech. That's what I was going to say. After the throne speech, after no matter what, no matter what's in the throne speech, that's what has to happen. Oh, that must be uh, very fun and inexpensive to try to fire a senior bureaucrat. I don't it's think been so. Done. It's been done. It has been done, and maybe you, like you move them. the deck deck chairs around in a yeah, yeah. in a way that's advantageous. Uh, David, what are what are you looking at as we head into this? I want to hear week? some specificity around the word "it" in "get it done." And I want to hear that it's health care. And I want to hear some measure. And by the way, whatever happened to those 16,000 PSWs that were promised in last year's throne speech by April? Have they ever reported in on how they did on that? Good question. They promised it last April, last October. And in last October's throne speech, 16,000 new PSWs by April. Hello. Where are they? Where are they? Okay. Before we go, let's take one call. Arlene and Lindsay. Hi, Arlene. Hi, Libby. Anyways, as far as I'm concerned, the nurses are not paid more than enough. They should get thousands and thousands of dollars more. These people are the first people that you meet when you go into a hospital, and they are always gracious, and they're always right there working hard. We pay rock stars. We pay entertainers thousands and thousands of dollars. They're billionaires. They've got planes and houses, etc., as you know. And these poor nurses, nobody cares about them. And it's time that we really look at these people. They're humans, okay? And the fact that they are on the front lines and doing this, it slays me. Like, honestly, they are treated horribly and they are disrespected, etc. I've seen it personally when I was in the hospital. I actually went in a few months ago. And the way people talk to these nurses, you can't pay them enough. I know I'm being emotional here, but as far as I'm concerned, they're worth their weight in gold. And the government needs to smarten up because if you don't have nurses, you don't have anything. They're who you see the first off, not doctors. You see these nurses, okay, who are working continuously to help the public, and nobody cares. Anyways, uh, that's all I wanted to say. Okay, Arlene, thanks for that. I, I have to tell she's right about she's the role of, right. of nurses, and some people do are disrespectful. But, you know, we had a fabulous call on Friday from a nurse who's over 65 doing double shifts, taking the extra shifts, and laid out very clearly where the bottlenecks work. She's saying, you know, sometimes there's no registered nurse upstairs, and there's only one or two in Emerge, and they're doing everything. And she, she was just very specific about where the shortages were. But she also said, I said, why are you doing it? Are you doing it because you love it? And she said, because she loves it. She knows how useful it is. And most patients are really grateful. And yeah. I can tell you when I've been a patient, I've been really grateful yeah, no, to my sure, nurses. Sure. And, and so, yes, they probably take abuse from people sometimes, like other people in the public eye. But, but most of us, I think, yes. appreciate them. Yeah, I think so. I'd like to think so. Yeah. I'd like to think so. Okay. That wraps it up for today. Thank you so much, Bill Van Gorder, Peter Mugridge, and David Kravitz. Thank you. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. See you in person next week. Oh, great. Great. Okay. I like that. Seeing more people in person. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, so what can pharmacists do to take some pressure off the healthcare system? We'll have that next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Can pharmacists help take the pressure off our overburdened health system? Well, we know the answer is yes, and the province is set to start allowing them to assess and prescribe medications for certain minor ailments beginning in January of 2023, including things like pink eye, urinary tract infections, and allergic rashes. Well, now the pharmacists are calling on the government to expand the list of medications that can be prescribed and to move up the date. So uh, what do you think, people? And are you ready to go and see your pharmacist about certain things instead of going to see a doctor? The number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Hi, thanks for joining us. 
Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Well, uh, you know, uh, we are in a crisis situation, or at least most people say we are. And uh, the government is set to, uh, is there any magic about that January 2023 date? There's no magic uh, other than the fact that government typically has two windows when they make regulatory changes to implement, one being uh, July 1st, uh, which we missed uh, narrowly because of the timing and, and election and all of the uh, pieces that need to be put in place to get the final approval of the uh, prescribing authority. Uh, and January 1st is the second window. So, you know, there are cases where you can put in an emergency order for things to be accelerated. And I would say that, you know, this is good progress. I mean, we are uh, certainly welcoming this and it's an important step, something we've been asking for for over a decade and we're finally getting it over the finish line. That said, it is a cautious approach. It's only 13 conditions when other provinces have many more added to their programs. So I've only named, let me count here, three. Uh, so what are some of the other conditions uh, that you can prescribe for? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's quite a few. There's 13. So uh, additional things would be uh, GERD, uh, as an example, um, hemorrhoids, um, Sprains, minor sprains and strains, uh, oral thrush, cold sores. You've mentioned uh, pink eye and urinary tract infection, allergic rhinitis, which is similar symptoms to a cold um, for allergies. Um, so that you know, it's quite a, it's a good starting point, and and I think we will be able to demonstrate the value and increasing access to these types of services in the community, and we'll be able to build on the list, and and that's our hope uh, is to get better alignment to where the other provinces are for prescribing authority. Because let's face it, we are in a healthcare crisis and we need all healthcare providers, not just pharmacists, but all uh, to practice to their full scope, to be complementary to primary care and hospitals and help ease the burden. Uh, a lot of the things you mentioned, there are already over-the-counter medications for them. And, and uh, you know, for something like GERD, I think a lot of people would probably already go into their pharmacy and ask the pharmacist uh, what they recommend or have their uh, favorite drug. Uh, so how what difference would the prescribing uh, make? Mm-hmm. So for more, um, you know, painful or... Uh, complicated situations that require a prescription, this would enable that. So you will still have the assessment approach uh, in terms of the pharmacist counseling the patient and coming up with uh, what the right treatment is. And that could be, you know, as uh, simple as an over-the-counter medication. But in many of these cases, it does require a prescription. And that's where the regulations come in. They've enabled the ability for the pharmacist to assess and prescribe the medication and provide that overall uh, assessment for the patient. So we're trying to keep people out of emergency departments for these common ailments uh, or um, clogging up uh, the backlog with uh, respect to primary care. Um, It's not a panacea, but we do have studies from U of T that have uh, showed that up to one-third of some of these visits to an emergency department could be avoided by enabling more pharmacists to do things like these minor ailments. And what else would you like to see included? Yeah, I think expanding the list to be um, more in line with what you see in other jurisdictions. Um, There are jurisdictions that have 36 different conditions. Some have 50. Right, Um, but can you name some of them just to give us an idea? Yeah, I mean, I I certainly could follow up with a more comprehensive list. But if you think of the high watermark in in Canada, at least uh, Alberta can prescribe pharmacists there any medication that is uh, within... Uh, their scope uh, for anything that's not a controlled substance. So, you know, that would be sort of the the, the top line, if you will, of uh, scope of practice for pharmacists who have that education and expertise and background in, in the medication. But it's not done in a silo. It is done in a collaborative, interprofessional way with physicians and their sharing of information. So I think that's also important. It's a, it's a partnership and a hub uh, kind of model. Okay. Um, I have a couple of questions. So one of the things that I heard that was problematic for uh, some older people is that you have a situation where, say, older people, their doctor has retired and they can't have, they don't have a new doctor and they just need to get uh, prescriptions renewed. And uh, it was suggested that maybe pharmacists can do that. Now, my understanding 
is that pharmacists do do that. You can get a prescription even if you don't have your doctor's renewal, but there's an extra charge for it. So is that an issue where the province doesn't pay the extra charge? So that's why the pharmacists can't do it. Uh, can you clarify that? That's correct. Yeah. So it's not an insured service under the ODB program or OHIP. So um, that's one of those that uh, is typically out of pocket or through private uh, reimbursement. And um, the the pharmacist can't do a full renewal. They do have to go through the physician, get the authorization. So they'll usually use a fax, believe it or not, even though we're in 2022, um, to communicate that and get the um, authorization. Um, that's different than a refill, of course, um, but when you have to extend or renew. And there are some regulatory amendments there that allow for under emergency cases um, where there's urgent need, um, there can be on a temporary basis an extension or a renewal done by a pharmacist. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, I, I can, and other people here can think of cases where we simply forgot to renew and you call the pharmacist and they'll renew it with pleasure, but they'll charge you an extra, I don't know how much. So is, is, is that the holdup? You need the province to give you some money to be able to do that? Yeah, there is a regulatory step to have the full authority to do renewals. Um, and then, of course, just like minor ailments and any other service, when we think about equitable access and increasing access to these services for any economic. Um, situation or circumstance, uh, I think public funding is important so that we avoid a two-tier type system where, you know, there's some that can afford these type services and others that cannot. So we do advocate for public funding for fair and reasonable reimbursement in line with what other healthcare providers would receive uh, for similar types of services. Okay, I'm going to take a call from Kathy in Etobicoke. Hello, Kathy. Hello there. Um, I would like to say that absolutely not for authorizing the pharmacist to do more than they're already doing um, in terms of taking on patients. Um, they're overworked as it is. So first of all, they'd have to redesign all of the shops so they'd have some room for the patients to come in. And two, if they're not increasing their staff, you're going backwards instead of forwards. Uh, you, uh, okay, Kathy, uh, we will ask Justin about that. So uh, I think... Uh, she certainly has a point. I mean, well, in terms of the re- design, you know, with flu shots and, and other shots, most pharmacies that I've been in have a spot, but um, it takes much longer than usual to get a prescription refilled. Uh, there are lineups, uh, and it, she's right. There is, you know, often not enough staff there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and certainly, you know, respect uh, the individual's uh, opinion on uh, not moving forward with this. It is moving forward. I think that's important. It will be implemented January 1st. And, you know, the valid points that were raised uh, are concerns that we need to address and, and mitigate as we evolve the practice. And it's no different than any other practice. You have to look at the health human resource component configuration. Um, and, in fact, you've seen a shift in how pharmacies operationalize things like um, the vaccinations and point of care testing in that we've shifted to more of an appointment-based model. There is uh, semi-private and private rooms in many pharmacies, although not all. So some will have to accommodate that as they adopt uh, and implement these types of services. And it's really about access and choice. So, you know, no one's going to be forced to go into a pharmacy for these services. Um, and uh, they have, you know, the options to continue through the traditional uh, care paths, if you will. Um, but I think as people see this, being implemented and, and being implemented well, as we've seen in every other jurisdiction across Canada. Ontario is one of the last to implement this. Um, we're confident we can do it uh, not only safely, but efficiently and uh, address all of those concerns. Okay. Well, I mean, here's here's what I've seen. I mean, pharmacies are small businesses. Uh, a lot of them are independent. They make their own decisions. And I can tell you that the pharmacy that I go, um, the service started to drop when there was an ownership change. And uh, I know that pharmacies have been doing well through the pandemic, and it's an individual choice where the owner in one place is uh, just not uh, adding to the labor costs. And there are much longer waits for, for things. I mean, should that be uh, mandated as well, that you have more staff on? Uh, if you're going to have more responsibilities? 
Yeah, and I think you raise a great point in terms of the whole health human resource component that is, uh, you know, contributing to burnout, it's contributing to shortages, not just in pharmacy, but across the healthcare system. So that is a consideration of, you know, when you adopt this, um, how you uh, operationalize it with staffing, using pharmacy technicians that are regulated more for a lot of the uh, technical tasks of preparing prescriptions and so forth. And, and you've also noted that every uh, pharmacy is slightly different in how they operate and whether it's an independent or it's a uh, more of a box store or chain. Um, so you're going to see it slightly different, but there's a standard of care that they all have to um, you know, adhere to and implement it in a fashion that is standardized um, if they so choose to implement. So, you know, I think you're going to see more um, of that consideration put in place between now and January and, and continue to ramp up as we've seen in other provinces. There is that uh, component that needs to be, um, you know, lock and step with uh, expanded scope. Uh, I mean, so what is the the standard of care? I mean, I've seen situations where the pharmacist is in the room consulting with somebody and presumably that is a higher value interaction and, and there are 20 people lined up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we've yeah. seen a lot of that during the pandemic too. And there's uh, certainly an ebb and flow to the to the surge of demand in a pharmacy um, as as we go through the various parts of the vaccine rollout, and point of care testing, which is now um, certainly again it's gone up a little bit with the youth and the boosters, but uh, has more normalized. Um, so, in terms of the standard of care, there are algorithms that are built in. There are tools that pharmacists will use to go through the assessment. Um, and there is a, a standard around, you know, what kind of questions you would ask, um, a checklist, if you will, uh, to ensure the, um, you know, similar standard, uh, no matter where you go for the service and um, the list of medications they would use as well to prescribe and so forth. So it is, um, you know, fairly well documented as well as supported through the association and the college to make sure that uh, all these things are put in place consistently. Okay, well, and I guess it's a, a matter where uh, you can shop around and go to a pharmacy where you like the service. Um, but so finally, uh, given that you have the two, uh, July 1st and January, what do you think the chances are that you get moved up? Yeah, I don't think they're um, they're good at this point. We would love to have seen it implemented yesterday type of uh, scenario. But, um, you know, there's there's certainly valid points to making sure we have all of these things in place. Um, and support the the rollout um, accordingly. But uh, given the crisis, I think anytime we can accelerate the implementation of these things, look at you know the other areas of prescribing like Paxlovid, so that we um, give people more access to antivirals. I mean, there's there's certainly areas we can build on, um, but you know we're we're certainly happy with the progress and the fact that government has moved in this direction to enable pharmacists, and uh, we look forward to delivering on that commitment. Okay. Thank you so much, Justin Bates, Ontario Pharmacists Association. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about more mask mandates being lifted and how uh, that is affecting uh, another shortage in healthcare, and that is a shortage of blood donations when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. There are not many mask mandates left, and the remaining ones seem to be coming off. This morning, we learned that school children won't be required to mask up in the fall. And here's a concerning thing. Canadian Blood Services removed its mask mandate last month, and that prompted a backlash that had many donors cancelling their appointments. And we're now in the midst of a critical blood shortage on top of everything else. So what do you think is that? Were you 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740? And I especially want to know if you're a blood donor, uh, is that making you think twice about it? Right now, I would like to welcome Dr. Barry Pecos, Medical Officer of Health for York Region. Hi, Dr. Pecos. Hi, thank you for having me. So mask mandates are coming off and you still see people wearing masks. But, you know, I know uh, even personally and I want to wear my mask, but, you know, I'm, uh, uh, you know, not as careful about it because I don't have to. 
Yeah, I mean that's the dynamic we've seen for for many months now. It's it's been uh, since since uh, March or early April that most of those mandates have come off, and really they're only present now in clinical settings. So if you're the kind of person who works in a hospital, goes into a hospital or clinical setting regularly, you know masks are going to be really regular and, and, you know, not a lot has changed for you, but pretty much everybody else in the population, they're much more of a rarity now. So, you know, that is, um, you know, something that may change in the fall uh, in terms of, you know, I don't think mandates necessarily, but people's personal preference. But, you know, throughout the seventh wave now over the summer, it's something we've definitely been thinking of and, and certainly reading what's going on with Canadian Blood Services. Like many organizations, it's this difficult, you know, balancing you know, putting a mandate on to, to wear masks and the, the you know, how that's going to impact the population they work with versus not having it. And, you know, every organization is going to just have to do that risk analysis of their own business or of their own, you know, well-being of their employees. Well, uh, I would think that they have seen the result of that. And, uh, you know, we're trying to talk to them. Not easy. They seem to be hiding somewhat. Uh, it looks like it was a mistake. And I sort of get it that people who donate blood are people who are plugged in when it comes to issues about health and they feel vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. You know, every organization, like I said, is going to, and, and we're doing this as well in public health. You know, we offer many clinical oriented services and we offer various things with, you know, populations that are marginalized and vulnerable. And we're trying to, you know, think to ourselves, how do we keep these people safe? while at the same time making them feel comfortable. And for some people, particularly those with mental health challenges, a variety of things, you know, masks or at least, you know, enforcing them in, in, the, in the case where people, you know, very, very strongly don't want to wear one, it, you know, it's a challenge. So Canadian Blood Services obviously, you know, is, is, has their, had their reasons for making the decision they did. And of course, us being outside those organizations, we, we don't know those in-depth reasons, but certainly, you know, I think it's reasonable for them to reconsider it. Uh, yeah, I would, uh, certainly think so. How worrying is that? That, I mean, I'm, I'm reading it's, it's not completely up to date. It's like only four days worth of O positive, five days worth of O, seven days worth of A positive. I mean, how worrying is that? You know, for sure. I mean, for most Canadians, of course, you, you don't need a blood product until you really do. And, and that's, one of the great things about having Canadian blood services and the people who volunteer so regularly, I mean, these are real, real regular heroes. We don't talk about a lot. So, you know, of course it is, it is concerning, um, mostly, you know, for, for hospitals and for trauma folks and, and having worked in some situations where we didn't have the blood we need. Absolutely. It, it, it uh, it's, absolutely life-saving. And, and I would hope hearing people hearing this conversation would go out and volunteer. And of course, Canadian blood services, figuring out their mask policy is going to be an important part of that. Yeah. Do, would you expect that they uh, reconsider? No, you know, of course, I, I'm not not being inside that organization or being part of those discussions at all. I, I, I don't know what those considerations that they've got are. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't want to, uh, <laughs> you know, suggest one way or the other there. Yeah, uh, it, it, it really is concerning because you really have a point there that you don't need blood until you really, really, really need it. I... I the mask mandate, we just learned, will not be in place for kids in the fall. And, and yes, it's true that kids are like less likely to uh, get serious disease, but uh, the strains that we've seen are incredibly contagious. Does that worry you at all? Yeah, you know, I, I wasn't expecting, uh, as many and, you know, probably were not expecting masks to be mandated in schools. Uh, this coming fall. Um, but of course, whether it's COVID or, or many other respiratory infections that we haven't seen in a long time that we really are expecting to see this fall once we start going inside more late fall, you know, and, and, uh, and gathering more regularly, of course, that is concerning. And as you pointed out, most kids aren't going to get very sick. So, you know, that doesn't concern me that much. But certainly some children who are severely immunocompromised Certainly, we can imagine teachers are going to be concerned about this. More importantly, though, frankly, you know, uh, kids gather, of course, in schools, bring things back to their families. Either those families may be vulnerable themselves or you know, elderly members of the family. And again, it really isn't just about COVID. It's about all kinds of things. So, you know, from a strictly public health perspective, would it be better if everyone continued to wear masks both now and in the school year to come? Sure. But, you know, that really isn't practical, you know, for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, in public health, we consider 
social construct as well as medical construct. And so, you know, I think the idea of, of, of vigorously enforcing masks in schools is really just not likely to happen. Um, I think there will be a lot more, whether it's kids or, or teachers wearing masks, you know, probably later into the fall once we see how things go. But, you know, it, it, it's something that's evolving and, and Canadians, Ontarians have shown themselves to be flexible and the government has shown itself to be able to make decisions, you know, based on, on the evidence and what's going on. So, you know, I, I think it's a reasonable decision to make right now and we'll see how things evolve. Okay. Uh, so, again, uh, you know, we're hearing that we're likely to have another wave of this in the fall. Yes, that is true. And, and um, you know, as we go back inside, that you know, that tends to be um, what happens. People whose w- immunity has waned either because from, from having infection or, or from having the vaccine, you know, a certain amount of time elapses. And we, we just know by the, the groups that, that were vaccinated when they're elapsing and as we go back inside. So, you know, in some ways it, it depends on the weather to some small degree. You know, having had this COVID wave, quite a large wave, now, uh, over the summer, the seventh wave, that probably means that that eighth wave is going to be pushed off a little bit. But again, I'm, I'm concerned about COVID, but I'm also concerned about all of the other respiratory viruses. And that includes influenza, something called RSV, a variety of other uh, infections. You know, as we move into the late fall and the winter, um, particularly with the, the impact that's going to have on acute care. And as, of course, you and all your listeners know, we're, we're in quite a, a dire situation with acute care right now. And we wouldn't want to be, you know, impacting the system any worse. So, you know, we're going to have to see how things evolve. And masks are going to be a part of that. New, the, the new vaccines are also going to be a part of that. The bivalent Moderna vaccine, as well as others, might be a part of the answers and solutions to these questions. Yeah, I haven't really looked into what the flu season and pandemic season is like uh, on the other side of the world. Do you have any insight on that? Well, so the the you know, every country, you know, around the world, we were synced up a little bit or we had predictable intervals between the um, b- between the waves in different countries. Right now, we're, we're mostly out of sync. What we can say is that the flu season, influenza season in the Southern Hemisphere um, was earlier and, and more severe than we had seen um, previously. And that was, of course, expected. Um, but, you know, there, there are some signals we're seeing from a variety of places around the world. But um, you know, as always with the pandemic, each different, each subsequent wave presents new challenges. And one of those is that we're all sort of less in sync than we were than we were before. So, you know, we're going to continue to look there. Um, and, and, you know, we, we are in some way going to have to just respond to our local epidemiology. Okay. Uh, well, uh, we uh, wait and we follow this, you know, with a lot of interest and a little bit of anxiety. Dr. Barry Pekas, thank you so much for that. Great. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.